0: Join us on a journey from Genesis to Revelation, all 66 books, the big book, cover to cover. This is Michael Easley in Context.
1: Well, welcome to the broadcast. As you know, we are in the big book cover to cover series where I'm attempting to teach through a book of the Bible every Sunday, and it's been a new exercise for me after about 40 years of being a pastor teacher in different capacities, I've never done something like this. And so because of that, we are going to subject matter experts, men and women who are smarter than me, to help us with some of the big picture views. And today we're delighted to have Dr. Mark Strauss. He's a scholar and professor of New Testament At Bethel Seminary in San Diego. It's part of the Bethel University, Minnesota Extension, although that's changed a bit, we'll talk about perhaps. His areas of interest and expertise include New Testament Gospels and Bible translation. Dr. Strauss earned his BA from Westmont College, MDiv, and THM from Talbot School of Theology, and a PhD from the University of Aberdeen. No small accomplishment. Prior to joining, Bethel in 93. Mark taught at Biola. He taught at the Christian Heritage College and Talbot School of Theology. Also served on the Committee of Bible Translation for the New International Version since 2005. He's married to his lovely wife, Roxanne. They have three children. Any grandchildren yet, Mark?
2: No, I'm pushing for that, but no one seems to be cooperating.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Well, as the bumper sticker says, have grandchildren first, I can attest. (laughs) Anyway, well, Mark, thanks for joining us. Appreciate your time. Great to be with you, Michael. Thanks. Let's start, uh, first of all, and, you know, we've not done this with different guests, but what puts you on a trajectory, Mark, to do all this biblical theology education? No small accomplishment for, I mean, the MDiv and THM is just a matter of discipline and hard work, but the Aberdeen PhD, that took some time and chops. What spurred you on to go down this line?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. I actually have a bachelor's degree in psychology. I wasn't even huh. studying biblical studies, and I finished up at Westmont with that degree, and was thinking of moving into counseling, but felt the Lord sort of putting a pause on that. And so I took a few courses at Talbot, and I never left, basically. I just loved the study of Scripture, particularly the academic study of Scripture. Didn't know where I was going from there. Didn't really feel a calling to ministry at that point. Had several professors in particular who really challenged students not just to be good at what they do, but to be the best in the sense of as biblical scholars, we should be the best archaeologists, the best historians. It's not about just defending the faith, it's about actually seeking truth, I might say. And mm-hmm. so it sort of moved me into an academic. Focus and sort of, (laughs) of.
1: (laughs) I'm I'm looking over your list of articles and books and festive, going, I can't scroll this fast.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and so you know, just the mind I preach a lot. I have a father who was a pastor and a grandfather who was a pastor, but in fact, I think I'm a better challenger of thought than motivator of behavior. We might say, I, Mm. I, I like to get people thinking, and I think we as Christians need to be good, solid, critical thinkers.
1: Interesting. Well, I appreciate the time and effort. I've had nothing near like your academic background, but I'm always impressed and encouraged by men and women who have the tenacity. I think Ed Bloom, Dr. Ed Bloom called it sits mm-hmm. and flash ability to study for great lengths of time. So anyway, let's talk about the gospel of Mark. Let's begin. Shortest gospel for decades, maybe longer, considered the hardest gospel. Start out with some of your general high view observations of our friend Mark and his gospel?
2: Sure. Mark's gospel in the early church was certainly the most neglected of the gospels. And you might say almost good reason for that, since 90% of Mark appears in either Matthew or Luke, 90%. And probably Matthew and Luke use Mark as a source for their gospels. But when that much is overlapped. The question is, do we really need Mark's gospel or not? So it was neglected. A commentary wasn't written on it until about the 4th or 5th century. Only in recent times really has a much greater focus been turned to Mark. When it was viewed in the 19th century, it began to be viewed as the earliest of the gospels, and that sparked interest in it as perhaps the most closely linked to Jesus, and so the most historical of the gospels. Since then, there's been a real focus also on Mark as a theologian and as a literary artist, as a writer and dramatic nature of the gospel. I think that's been a huge interest of mine is to see how Mark's gospel is not just a source for Matthew and Luke. It is actually a literary and a theological masterpiece. And we Mm -hmm. need to treat it as that and study it as that.
1: Speak a little bit to the John, Mark, and Barnabas, and Paul Mm -hmm. relationship and the gospel.
2: Yeah, and Mark's interesting character because he wasn't an apostle. And sometimes people say, well, how could this book be viewed as authoritative scripture if it was written by someone who wasn't an apostle? But if we look at Mark's mentors, Mark was the cousin of Barnabas. And of course, Barnabas and Paul went on that first missionary journey, we also know that journey was disastrous for John Mark in the sense that he abandoned the missionary group and returned to Jerusalem.
1: Mm-hmm. So let me, let me interrupt real quick. How old do you think he was when he was with Barnabas?
2: That's a great question. I would guess early 20s, though he could have been younger. He could have been even you know anywhere from 16 to 20. We don't know. The age is never right. mentioned, but he seems to have been quite young.
1: That's good. I just wanted to inject that because I'm intrigued by that. I know it's speculation, but we do have some indications with the terms that are used about youth and young. But anyway, I interrupted you. So, uh, So we've got this young man who has an interesting past. He's related to Barnabas. We don't know what the precise conflict was between Paul and him, but keep on.
2: Yeah. And so Paul viewed it as a desertion because when he said to Barnabas, let's go back and visit the churches that we started on our first missionary journey, Barnabas said, yeah, let's take John Mark. And Paul says, absolutely not. He was a deserter. He's a wimp. There's no way we're going to take him. Barnabas, true to form, if you follow Barnabas's character throughout the book of Acts, he's a reconciler. He's bringing people together. He's just encouraging, he's a great encourager, which is what his name means, of course, son of encouragement. And so he wants to take John Mark, Paul says no, so they split actually, and Barnabas and John Mark go back to Cyprus, the island of Cyprus, Paul takes Silas and heads off to revisit the churches in Galatia. You know, the big question, who was right, who was wrong? Well, God used this conflict to double his missionary Mm -hmm. outreach. Mm -hmm. We have two groups instead of one now, and also, of course, we know that Mark was eventually restored to Paul at the end of Paul's life in Second Timothy. He says to Timothy, bring Mark with you to Rome because he's
1: useful in ministry. <laughs> I love that word, he's useful. <laughs> Our English yeah, and, minds kind of have a hard time with that. He's useful to me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, certainly but, a positive Right, influence. but there's a reconciliation of some kind.
2: Yes, and so Mark's mentor was Barnabas, his mentor was Paul, and then his third mentor was Peter, because we know that when he came to Rome, he actually worked with Peter. Early church tradition says that really Mark's gospel is Peter's memoirs, if you will, Peter's recollection of these events. And so talk about mentors. I mean, if you ask, is Mark qualified? Mark had three of the greatest Christian leaders in the early church, all as his mentors. So I think he's more than qualified to write this gospel.
1: Now, you say it was uh, neglected, and that's a very common observation by scholars dating back hundreds of years. The brevity and the language isn't cumbersome, but it's a little harder (laughs) Uh, yep. In the Greek New Testament, I remember studying this in seminary and, you know, compared to translating John, which is a breeze from a grammatical standpoint, Mark is a little bit of a slugfest. That said, once you get into it, it's pretty remarkable. His structure, his themes, some of the recurrent patterns in there, some overview on that, Doc?
2: Yeah, and I think that's exactly right. And the structure, it's funny because in the early 20th century. A lot of scholars were saying, well, Mark was just kind of a loosely strung together collection of sayings, and that has really dramatically changed. It's especially changed with the rise of what we call narrative criticism or narrative analysis of the Gospels that have looked at the Gospels from the perspective of how stories function, how plots develop, how characters appear. And Mark's has just risen to the top in terms of interest because of that narrative focus. Mark is a great storyteller, mm-hmm. but I like to jokingly compare Matthew to Mark because Matthew is super brief and Mark will say something in 300 words that Matthew will say in a hundred words. And Mark is full of colorful detail and drama. I jokingly say, if you're going to have a party and you want a guest who's going to be entertaining, don't invite Matthew, right? You're <laughs> going to have, you know, you're going to say, what do you do for a living? He'll say engineer. And you'll say, well, uh, an Are you
1: speaking of Mark or Matthew? I'm sorry.
2: No, what I'm saying is Matthew is just, giving you the facts, okay, just the facts. Okay, all right. Joe Fry. He's the Joe Friday of the gospel, gotcha. right? Whereas if you know that illusion.
1: Yeah, dates us both, but yes, we do. Yeah. <laughs> just the facts, man. Yeah.
2: Whereas Mark is the great storyteller. And, you know, he's the life of the party because he's the one who's giving this enthralling story that everyone's engaged in. So I think as we read Mark, we see that dramatic narrative style.
1: One of the interesting parts of the narrative, we tend to overuse that word, I think, but the movement immediately a word that Mark loves to use in his transitions. It's a fast clip story.
2: Yep, yep. One event tumbling right over the next. Doesn't give any birth narratives, any stories of Jesus' birth, no genealogy. He hits the ground running with John's public ministry and then with Jesus' public ministry. By the end of chapter one, you're well into Jesus' public ministry already, whereas in Matthew and Luke, you're barely into the birth stories of Jesus.
1: Another trend that I scratch my head about is not to tell anyone. Uh, Mark seems to emphasize this more, correct me if I'm wrong, than synoptics that, you know, Jesus has done something, they've witnessed something, don't tell anybody. What's what's going on there?
2: We call it the messianic secret, and it occurs in three different contexts. Jesus tells demons, he silences demons. Mm -hmm. They proclaim who he is, and he shuts them up and silences them through his authority. People he heals, he tells, don't tell anyone. And then when the disciples announce who he is, he says, don't tell anyone. So those three different contexts, it can't be a, you know, just a mistake that we're noticing this messianic secret. And really, I think the key to the messianic secret is that Jesus is going to redefine, radically redefine the role of the Messiah. The Jews were expecting a conquering Messiah who would defeat the Roman legions and establish God's kingdom physically in Jerusalem. And Jesus wants to redefine that picture of the Messiah as the one who's going to suffer and die as an atoning sacrifice for sins. So whereas the Jews are looking for a physical conquest of the Romans, Jesus is going to conquer much greater foes. He's going to conquer Satan. He's going to conquer sin. And he's going to conquer death, the greatest foes humanity has for all the ages, not just the Roman Empire in the first century.
1: Unpack a little bit for us this phrase, and I know it gets into some pretty variegated theology, but the kingdom of God is at hand.
2: Mm, Yeah, yeah. The message throughout Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels, Jesus' central message is the kingdom of God, and huge discussion, historical debate over what that means. Ultimately, it means that God's divine authority over all creation, and that divine authority was interrupted when human beings... Adam and Eve rebelled against God. And so when Jesus says the kingdom of God is at hand, he says God is claiming back authority over his kingdom, especially those areas where Satan has intruded. And this is why the exorcisms, the casting out of demons are so important. They're evidence that the kingdom of God is breaking in and defeating the kingdom of Satan. So Jesus basically says he's the one who's going to reverse the results of the fall of humanity. This is a huge thing. He's going to turn... From what Adam and Eve did, he's going to return and restore humanity's right relationship with God. And so the miracles, the healings, for example, are meant to indicate the reversal of what happened at the fall. Death and disease came in when Adam and Eve fell. So Jesus is demonstrating the power over death and disease he alludes and quotes passages from Isaiah that speak about the end times when God will restore creation, the lame will walk, the blind will see, the deaf will hear. That's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's having the deaf, making the deaf hear, the blind see. So it's a cosmic restoration of all of creation that Jesus is launching and will, through his life, death, and resurrection, accomplish that salvation that will then ultimately be consummated when he returns at his second coming.
1: One of the things that always intrigues me are these, I call them the, oh, by the way, the obvious parts of the text that we might, you know, read over too quickly. But Mark is pretty good at recording Christ withdrawing, getting away, going by himself up on the mountain. And I think it was, I, I forget, Dallas Willard, someone in that, genre of literature about spiritual disciplines talked about. If for no other reason, you know, you can evaluate these things, you know, we should do this and not do that. If Jesus Christ got away by himself (laughs) to pray, who are we to think we can live the Christian life apart from such? But we don't hear that talked about much when you read these gospel stories. We're in the action, we're in the, you know, the healing and dealing with the parables, which I want to get to. But any insight you have on that? I love these little phrases, you know, where he slips away and he goes. Yeah, got
2: and I think one of the reasons maybe we don't touch on them is because we emphasize the deity of Christ, that he's truly God, but we in some ways ignore what in some ways is more important for our salvation, and that is his humanity. And so he is living a life of perfect humanity, which means absolute dependence on God. So those times of prayer are essential for him because he's not acting in his essential deity on earth. He gave that up. He emptied himself as it says in Philippians two. And so he is essentially depending on the father. And so he needs those times of prayer and those times of getting away and focusing and listening to God and submitting his own will to God's will, a very neglected aspect of the gospel.
1: And I would say neglected, In the average believer's life, I'm struck with the, and I don't mean it unkindly, but I often, when I'm teaching, talk about meaningless repetition in our prayers. I say, you know, when you and I pray over a meal, we pray in the morning, we pray for friends, we say the same thing. And here we are speaking to the God of the universe with meaningless repetition. Now, it's not entirely meaningless. It's a little tacky. But my point being, here the God-man spends the night in prayer before he chooses the twelve. He's exhausted after full days of you know healing and interacting with people, and rather than sleep in late, he gets up when it's still dark to go be alone with his father. And it just strikes me, you know, our view of Christianity and how we pragmatically follow Christ as a disciple, we overlook these most obvious things. Absolutely. I think that's absolutely true. Let's go to the parable of the sower and the soils. It's one of these parables that, on the one hand, it's so easy and beautiful. On the other hand, it's maddening. (laughs) What does this mean? (laughs) So, Mark, give us some insights from your study.
2: Yeah, well, the parable of the sower certainly is about Jesus' proclamation of the kingdom, the various responses to his proclamation, his announcement of the kingdom, And the different seeds and soils represent the response to the kingdom. What is the most puzzling part of the parables, when Jesus is asked by the disciples afterwards why he speaks in parables, and he quotes from Isaiah 6, where it says, So that they may be ever seen but never perceiving, (laughs) ever hearing but never understanding. Otherwise, they might turn and be forgiven. Exactly, yeah. So Jesus says, I speak in parables, so they won't understand. They won't understand.
1: Uh, wait yeah. a minute. Yeah, okay.
2: Matthew and Luke both smooth that over. And Matthew says, because they don't understand, I speak in parables. Not so bad. It's mm. that causal thing that's—but I think if we read it in context, it's incredibly powerful. Because what has just happened before this is the religious leaders have seen the work of the Spirit in the life of Jesus. He's cast out demons by the power of the Spirit, and they say— You're doing it by the power of Satan. In other words, they look straight into the light. They see the work of the Spirit, and they attribute it to darkness. They attribute it to Satan. And the Spirit is the one who reveals Jesus. If they're rejecting the Spirit's work in their life, they're rejecting it all. So Jesus says, basically, you have committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is to hear the voice of the Spirit, to see the clear work of the Spirit, feel the call of the Spirit, and to reject it outright to turn to darkness and that is the only unpardonable sin if you think about it we can be forgiven of every sin except rejecting the spirit's work because if we reject the spirit's work we reject ultimate salvation and so this is a key turning point in the narrative as the religious leaders essentially look this is the brightest light they're going to ever see in terms of the truth and they turn to darkness so jesus says from now on my parables are going to use your unbelief to accomplish God's purpose. And this is what God always does, right? God will take even evil actions of human beings and use them to accomplish mm, his purpose. Just like he did for Pharaoh, you know, with Pharaoh, Pharaoh mm-hmm. rejected God. So God pardoned his heart so he could bring about this glorious exodus. Mm-hmm. And it's the same with the cross of Christ, right? They reject Jesus, they crucify him. But what does God do? He uses that crucifixion, to accomplish ultimate salvation, turning evil into good.
1: I've so appreciated Charles Talbert's work on the parables and structural analysis. And I think I have to attribute it to him. I can't remember where some of this stuff comes into my brain. But in the parable of the sowers, in chapter 4, verse 3, it's listen. Behold, And then he tells the story. The sower goes out to sow, and there's the different soils, the rocky soil, the thorns, and the good soil. And then he summarizes it. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. So listen, pay attention, behold. And now we get this hear and hearing, and that theme is carried out through almost the rest of chapter 4. Uh, He talks about they hear, but they don't understand. He says they hear it's taken away. And the explanation of the parable is where, I mean, your citation of the Isaiah passage, of course, is the one that we all scratch our heads with. But the explanation makes it almost more complicated for the modern listener because he goes, well, they hear it's taken away. They hear it. It's received with joy, but no root. They hear it. uh, But the worries strangle it out. They hear it and they accept it and they bear fruit. And then he sums it up again. If you have ears to hear, let him hear. And then he says, take care to what you listen to, which mm-hmm. I love the framing. Sometimes I guess they're called the uh, marking sandwiches or whatever, mm-hmm. um, how we have this structural layout. And then he goes to another parable of a seed and then another one of the mustard seed. To me, the way Mark arranges the story is fascinating, but I still need some help on these soils. And, you know, are these American Christians? Are they people (laughs) that never really trusted Jesus? Are they people that, you know, when Satan takes it away, that's, well, that one seems kind of clear. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So which seeds are actually saved and which are not? And I think that's ultimately the wrong question. Really, only the seed that produces fruit is the positive one. Every other one is a negative one. And so Jesus is talking about how people are responding to his kingdom proclamation. And only those who bear fruit really are, I think, the believers in this context. So it's not that people are losing their salvation. It's ultimately how people are. These are different ways that distract people from what is the most important thing in life, which is responding to God's kingdom, responding to God and getting on on his plan and getting on his salvation purpose.
1: Well, I love that you point out the kingdom. In uh, 411, he says, to you have been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, get everything in parables. And then he picks that up again with the introduction in verse 26, the kingdom of God is like, and then we have verse 30, how shall we explain the picture of the kingdom of God? What parable shall we present it? And so we get this repetition, again, throughout the synoptics, the kingdom of God is like. uh, Help us with first century context. When they heard that kingdom, and you've explained that a little bit already, do you think the general, maybe two or three responses, one was this rectification of the Jews would now have control of their government? Was it Mm -hmm. a literal Messiah who was going to govern and be a seated authority? Was he going to bring in this kingdom they looked to? What's your sense?
2: Yeah, I think for the most part, when you know the announcement of the kingdom would have sounded political, it would have sounded military, it would have sounded physical, they would have been thinking in terms of, of Israel once again having a dominant empire, like in the time of David, in the time of Solomon, and then later under the Maccabees. Those were the glory days, and that's what Israel truly wanted, and in many ways, that blinded them to the reality that they were living, in many ways, in disobedience to God And when Israel disobeyed God, God promised exile. He didn't promise restoration in that way. They needed to repent and turn back to him. And then God would bring the kingdom. So Jesus' announcement is not just the kingdom, it's repent and believe in the message of salvation, believe in the kingdom. And then God would bring that restoration. Israel's rejection of the kingdom ultimately resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem, the destruction of the temple ultimately all part of God's plan. There's the great mystery, right? That God knew all along this was going to happen, that Israel was going to reject the message of salvation. Through that rejection, he would accomplish Mm -hmm. his salvation. Mm
1: -hmm. Let's jump to his hometown in chapter 3. He goes home to Nazareth. It's uh, Shabbat. It's Sabbath. He's going to teach in the synagogue. And I think we sometimes see these colloquial, you know, and we probably misapply that, you know, the prophet is not welcome in his own home. What insights do you have on that, Doc?
2: Now, you're talking about chapter six, I think. Yes, sir. It's yes, back. sir.
1: Where yeah. he comes, yeah, so he comes in yeah. Nazareth. He, it's the Sabbath. He yeah. goes to his synagogue, which I don't know if you've been to Nazareth, but there's a uh-huh. pretty good indication of maybe not the, but a synagogue that would have existed around that time. I've right. been there several times. It's quite delightful.
2: This is a, a crucial episode right here because it does follow the rejection Of the religious leaders, and in many ways, the rejection of his family, which happens in chapter three. So, this section from three to six is once again sort of the section where you see this division within Israel, where the disciples are siding with Jesus in the kingdom of God, but in fact, his own people, the leaders of his nation, are rejecting him. And the rejection at Nazareth sort of symbolizes. You know, John chapter one, where it says he came to his own and his own did not receive him. Mm -hmm. So you've got that rejection. And what happens right after that, then, is that Jesus sends out the 12. So you've got the 12 representing the faithful remnant of Israel in contrast to the religious leaders, in contrast to his own people, to his own family, and in contrast to his own hometown. That rejection motif there.
1: I've always been struck by the chapter 6, verse 6, he wondered at their unbelief. Yeah. <laughs> and, and you mentioned earlier his humanity. I agree. I think we think of the deity and the fully God-man, but we don't talk about the fully man And um, those passages just kind of make me stop in my tracks, Mark. Yeah. He wondered at their unbelief.
2: Well, there's several things that just point to Mark as this master storyteller. First of all, up until this point, who's amazed? The crowds are amazed. He heals. Amazement is a major theme in Mark's gospel, and he uses like six different Greek words for amazement. Mm -hmm. So. He healed and they're amazed. He cast out demons, they're amazed. He raised the dead and they're amazed. And now we get to Nazareth and it's not the people who are amazed. It's Jesus who is amazed. (laughs) He's amazed at their lack of faith. And then what's ironic is one of the hardest statements of Mark in the whole gospel is verse five. It says he could not do any miracles there. He could not do any miracles there. And we go, how could it be the son of God could not do miracles? Well, Jesus is responding to faith. And if there's no faith, he's saying, I can't help you. I can't help you if you don't respond in faith. So, you know, whereas, again, Matthew smoothed that over and says he did not do many miracles there. But Mark actually says he could not.
1: I wonder if that's more a messianic prerogative is that I'm not going to do a miracle. I'm not here to perform for you. I'm not here to give you fish, you know, feed your bellies. I'm not, you know.
2: I think that's true. But I do think that he's doing miracles in response to faith. And then the irony, of course, is except he lay his hands on a few sick people and healed them. Jesus has a bad day and he heals a few people. You know, it's like (laughs) that's the best day I would have ever. Let's go
1: back though, because I want to push you on on this a little bit. Okay, sure, you bet. Jesus does not perform miracles because we have faith all the time.
2: No, not all the time.
1: We have object lessons, uh, John 9. The guy does nothing. He's an object lesson, you know, and he's going to perform a miracle. We have a number of miracles that were not based on faith. Um, I absolutely agree.
2: However, if you're following, and this is what I would encourage, if you're following the narrative of Mark's gospel to this point, What Jesus says, repent and believe in the kingdom. And if people repent and believe, they receive salvation blessings. The whole previous episode, Jesus raises Jairus' daughter. Daughter, mm -hmm. heals the woman with the blood. Both of those mm -hmm. stories are focused on faith, right? He turns around to the woman and he says, your faith has saved you. And then the people arrive and say, Jairus' daughter is dead. And he says, only believe. So in the immediate context – Jesus is healing in response to faith. He gets to his hometown, who should be the greatest fans of his, and what happens? There's no faith, and Jesus says, I can't help you. I can help these others because they're responding in faith. But if you don't respond in faith, you don't get the salvation blessings.
1: And I appreciate so that, that clarification. I just don't want people to think it's right. the amount of faith I have absolutely. that God then says, oh, you believe me a lot, so I'll do something for you. Because that then becomes sort of a I call it puppeteering God in reverse. Yep. If then. I
2: absolutely agree. Okay. I absolutely okay. agree. And that passage in John is a classic example. I mean, there's several passages in John where it's clear that Jesus is not healing in response to faith. He's healing simply to bring glory to God, to right, demonstrate right. God's glory. Well, it, and, in this, and
1: the classic story that we'll get to maybe in a second in Mark 9, one of the best lines of the New Testament, Lord, I believe, help my unbelief. Exactly. You know, and this exactly. guy's saying, I want to believe, but I don't know yep. what that means. And yep. I think that's what led Augustine to say he even gives us the faith to believe in him. Right.
2: Absolutely. That's
1: it. All right. Mm -hmm. So let's go on then. Um, We know, again, and one of my concerns teaching these books in one fell swoop is we know some of this too well, and we kind of, (laughs) uh, the obvious, the feedings of the 5,000, and I'm going to argue that's, you know, 10 to 12, because more than likely they only counted the men as households. Insights, uh, observations, what you've seen in these, as you've studied the feedings especially
2: You know, the feeding miracles like walking on water are called nature miracles. And, you know, they're the most challenging in some ways for scholars to defend. Uh, But what is Jesus doing when he's feeding the 5,000? Well, he's doing not just an act of compassion, which it is. It's an act of compassion. But it's also symbolic of his ministry. Jesus doesn't do anything by accident. So when he heals the sick, when he heals the blind and the deaf and the lame— He's demonstrating the restoration of the kingdom of God as presented in Isaiah and so forth. So when he feeds the multitudes, what is he doing? Well, the Old Testament analogy is, of course, feeding manna in the wilderness. I mean, Mark says this was an Eremos, This was a desert, a wilderness. It's exactly the same word used in the Greek Old Testament to describe the wilderness. So they're in the wilderness and Jesus miraculously feeds them. Well, what the analogy is, Jesus is the new Moses. Who, as in John's gospel, it's developed in detail, this idea, the bread that comes down from heaven, the manna that comes down from heaven. I think it's also in Mark's gospel and the other gospels that Jesus is presented as this Moses-like figure who is bringing the new covenant. Moses brought the first covenant. He brought the new covenant. The other analogy then is what we call the messianic banquet in Isaiah 25. Where it says on this mountain, on Mount Zion, um, God's going to prepare a rich feast for all peoples, for all the nations, the best of wine, the finest of meats, things that your common peasants would have maybe once or twice a year. And God's going to give this massive banquet. And then it says he will destroy the shroud that covers all people. He'll destroy death basically forever. So we realize this banquet is a symbol of God's final salvation. And so when Jesus feeds this multitude in the wilderness, he is looking back at the feedings in the wilderness with Israel in the exodus, and then he's looking forward to the promise of this great messianic banquet, a symbol of God's final Mm -hmm. salvation. So he's enacting, essentially, uh, symbolizing, demonstrating the salvation that he's bringing.
1: Do you think, again, I love to try to study and postulate what the first audience heard um, do you think they saw the connection clearly to Moses? That's a
2: great question. I don't think there's any doubt they do in John. I mean, it says they, want, right. they see this miracle, they want to make him king. Mark doesn't give a lot of response in this case. So I don't know historically. You know, there's mm-hmm. there's two issues we can say. What was happening historically? And then what does Mark want us to see from right, the narrative right. and from the perspective of story? And I think there are some hints There's other Moses imagery, of course. The Transfiguration is full of Moses' Exodus imagery. So when you put it all together, I think probably he expects his readers to see these connections.
1: In chapter 7, we have this uh, wonderful, and again, another, it's confounding, it's beautiful, it's convicting. But when he talks about the heart of man— Seven fourteen. listen again, listen yeah. to me, all of you, and understand there's nothing outside the man which can defile him if it goes into him. But the things which proceed out of the man are what defile the man. And then he goes into in another parable explanation of a parable, but this idea, and you've probably heard it like me, and we've not talked about this before, but this idea that, you know, our heart transformation and our hearts can be made whole and our hearts can be made holy. And I read these kind of passages going, no, I'm going to wrestle with my heart inclinations (laughs) until I'm dead. Um, And it seems to be what Jesus is saying here, even when he says all these evil things proceed within and defile the man Thoughts on his discussion here, what proceeds out of the man from the heart? Yeah,
2: it makes it clear we need transformation. We need internal transformation. This is not something that we can just do by will, by desiring to do it. It's something that's going to take a transformation of our soul through the work of Christ. And so I, I do think that's critical. And then, of course, you know, the radical statement where he says nothing that goes into your body defiles it. Well, in the Old Testament, it did defile it. If you ate pork, you were defiled. That was a defiling act. Um, And so when Mark adds in saying this, Jesus declared all foods clean. That is radical. Mm -hmm. I mean, that Mm -hmm. That is just revolutionary in this Jewish context that Jesus could say, oh, by the way, all those dietary laws of the Old Testament, we're done with that now. This is some of the clearest evidence that Jesus is inaugurating the new covenant. He's not just reforming Judaism. He's bringing in the new age of salvation goes along with the theme of the kingdom of God that he announces at the beginning. This is the center point in human history as God is claiming back his authority over creation. I mean, you know, to, the Sabbath controversies are the same way where Jesus is fulfilling the Sabbath. He's not just absolutely perfectly keeping the Sabbath. He's also in some way bringing it to conclusion his own life, death, and resurrection. Mm -hmm.
1: Okay. Now, the Syrophoenician woman, and I studied this years ago, and it was one of those, and you have them too, where you're mind-blown, aha, insights. But 17 times in the gospel, we have this answered and said formula. Mm -hmm. They're all participles except here. And we have two indicatives in this passage, and it's the first time anyone addresses Jesus as Lord, and if I understand chronologically, it's the first time in synoptics anyone's going to call him Lord. So the setup is, uh, he's gone to Tyre, and um, let me just read it. Uh, This is chapter 7, verse 24. Jesus got up, went away from there to the region of Tyre, and he entered a house he wanted no one to know, yet he could not escape notice. But after hearing of him, a woman whose little daughter— had an unclean spirit, immediately came and fell at his feet. Now, the woman was a Gentile of the Syrophoenician, race. I mean, it's like he's, you know, glomming on top. She's yeah. not a Jew, baby. understand this. And she kept asking him. And if I remember correctly, ongoing participle indicative, and she's pestering him, cast right. the demon out of her daughter. And he was saying to her, let the children be satisfied first, for it is not good to take the children's bread and throw to the dogs. And I'm inject there. That's Israel. Maybe you can clear that up for me. But she said to him, yes, Lord, even the dogs under the table feed on the children's crumb. Yes, Lord. Number one. Mm -hmm. So a Gentile Syrophoenician who's heard rumors about this guy, I mean, and Mark goes over the top. It's Tyre. This is out of Jerusalem proper. These people don't know any of the history. She knows something. Mm hmm. Whether it was rumor, we don't know, but she heard about that. But she calls him Lord, Mark.
2: Yeah. I have to say, this may well be my favorite passage in the whole gospel, because it is so shocking. First of all, when she comes in, she makes this request. You know, he's trying to get away with his disciples, I think, again, and yet she finds him. And what do you expect? As a Jewish rabbi, his first words are exactly what you would expect. And I'm sure the disciples were saying this, amen, at this point, when he (laughs) says, Let the children eat, let the <laughs> Israel eat first, because salvation blessings are for Israel. We shouldn't take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs. And of course, dogs is a derogatory yes. term used by Jews for Gentiles. And I'm sure at that point, the disciples are going, amen, amen. High-fiving, yeah. <laughs> yeah, e- exactly, because he's expressing their perspective. And then she says that brilliantly, even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. In other words, Gentiles also were meant to receive the salvation blessings after Israel gets them, They were to spill over to the Gentiles because salvation was for all nations everywhere. And then Jesus said, for such a reply, you may go. Now, what is amazing about this passage, this is the only time in the whole gospel of Mark, in the whole New Testament, that Jesus loses a debate. Now, (laughs) stay with me here.
1: (laughs) I I love it.
2: (laughs) Jesus basically every other time when, when the religious leaders challenge him, you know, should we pay taxes to Caesar? You know, um, right. all the they challenge him. He defeats them with his wisdom <laughs> and knowledge. And every time he humiliates them, he defeats them. They're crushed. In this case, he says, "You know what? I'm wrong. You're right." <laughs> and then he heals. He heals the daughter, and she's a Gentile, and she's a woman. Well, yeah, I, mean, I going to bring that up. This is this is together.
1: this is blowing away I mean, the whole egalitarian, complementarian gender debates. This is a woman who's a throwaway person. And she gets more of who Jesus is than even the disciples.
2: Exactly, exactly. And so what does Jesus do? You know, some feminist theologians have actually said, oh, Jesus changed his mind. He used to be for the Jews. Now he's for the Gentiles. That's not what's happening here. He's doing what he's always doing. He's provoking faith. He says, no, I'm sorry. It's not for you. What is he doing? He wants her to challenge him. He wants her to claim what is rightfully hers as a Gentile. Because read Isaiah, read the Old Testament. The nations are going to stream to Israel to see God's glory. And so all along, this salvation Jesus is bringing was meant to go first to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Let the children eat first, and then the dogs are going to get the blessings of salvation as well. And she gets it, and the disciples don't get it. So I just think that's incredibly powerful.
1: Yeah, I love it. Well, and— I talk of this often in our church. I mentioned you've got to understand the Abrahamic covenant. You've got to understand the Davidic covenant. You got to understand the new covenant. Those things need to be stock and trade uh, benchmark theologies for you, because unless you understand Abrahamic covenant was to bless the world, not Mm -hmm. just the Jew, that the Davidic covenant was going to put Jesus on the throne eternally, the new covenant was going to rectify the problem of bilateral covenants. And now we're seeing it played out, you know, from the Abrahamic covenant that he's gone to the Gentile. So
2: That's beautiful. That's exactly right. On my first day of New Testament survey, I go through those three covenants because you know that's that's I'm so glad to know
1: that. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's always good to have someone else affirm your position. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. <laughs> okay, so now we're back to another feeding in chapter eight. Yep. We're gonna have it's like a redux, why?
2: Yeah. Well, I am with those who say that in this whole section right here, Jesus is in the Decapolis. He's in Gentile territory. Mm -hmm. He's, you know, first of all, Tyre and Sidon and now the Decapolis. And so he's in Gentile territory. So what does Mark want to say? Mark has just given us this story of the Syrophoenician woman, which says salvation is going to go not just to the Jews, but then to the Gentiles. So it seems to me the symbolism of, you know, of the 5,000 with 12 baskets left over, the 4,000 with seven baskets. Mark's got to be thinking of salvation going to the Gentiles as well. There's another feeding that's going to happen, and it happens in the book of Acts, as the gospel breaks out of its Jewish context and goes to the Gentiles as well. So I do think there's not a lot of explicit symbolism that would point in that direction, but the fact that it is taking place in the Decapolis, in Gentile territory, the seven perhaps symbolic of the 70 nations, the symbolism behind the 70 nations, Gentile nations of the world. Um, The word for basket um, is actually a common Gentile word, whereas the word for basket, it's a different word in the feet in the 5,000, which was, was something that Jews carried. It's really a word associated specifically with Jews. So little hints like that. I think Mark is thinking in terms of the two stages, going to the Jews and then going to the
1: Gentiles. I often uh, talk about layers of application that, you know, to the immediate context, the audience, the one who was fed, obviously, but also to the apostles. The disciples are, you know, they're the servers in these situations. As far as we know, we don't have explicitly in this particular feeding, but it would be a safe conclusion to say, not unlike the last feedings, here they are, go go feed them. But you kind of wonder you know, and of course, we're going to have Peter's confession real quickly after this in Mark's chronology. But you wonder, you know, what were they thinking? They've seen this rodeo once before. Now they're in Gentile territory seeing it again. Are they connecting the dots in a way that maybe we miss sometimes?
2: Yeah. In the very next episode, of course, it suggests they're not. Um, they're not right. getting it. This is the most baffling. And the next three chapters in 8, 9, and 10 and the failures of the disciples are shocking and baffling. Because we know they are on the side of Jesus, but then they're on the brink. And I think, you know, the big question is, are they going to go the way of the religious leaders? It's, you know, they get in the boat right after this. And Jesus says, watch out for the yeast of the Pharisees and the yeast of Herod. And they say, oh, it's because we've got no bread. We forgot to bring lunch. (laughs) And and Jesus says, why are you talking about having no bread? Do you still have not see or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Mm -hmm. Whose hearts were hardened? The religious leaders. Do you have eyes but fail to see? Ears, but fail to hear. That's exactly the accusation against the religious leaders. So, this is scary stuff. They're on the brink of unbelief in the same way the religious leaders have turned against Jesus and committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. I think, you know, the next three chapters are going to show the disciples struggling with their faith and really Jesus as the true model of what a disciple is meant to be. Jesus is the only one, he says, if you want to be my disciple, take up your cross and follow me. There's only one who takes up the cross in the Gospel of Mark, and that's Jesus. And so he is our ultimate model.
1: Well, and I don't want to get too far ahead, but, you know, in the yep. end of the gospel, we have this doubting metaphor, or this doubting theme still hanging on. But I love the way you set that up, because in chapter nine with the transfiguration, it's like, OK, let me explain this to you. <laughs> <laughs> Here we go. We're in the transfiguration. We're going to take these three key apostles, Peter, James and John, and they're going to witness something. Uh, I love, love, love Peter having nothing to say says something. (laughs) I love that he says things that a lot of us would have said and done because we get insight and information. But the proclamation and the Trinitarian identification, this is my beloved son, listen to him, back to listen, Mm -hmm. listen, listen. And then we still, they don't get it. And it strikes me as you do. I mean, I often say, you know, don't ever put yourself above an apostle. Don't ever, you know, make fun mm-hmm. of Peter. You're going to see him one day. He was an <laughs> apostle and you and I weren't. Yet at the same time, it is confounding this whole section. Believe, listen, hear, believe. He's proved it. He's shown it. He's performed miracles at a distance over nature, uh, over demons, and they still aren't putting it together. And then we've got this marvelous story with Mark nine, with the man who appeals to the disciples who can do nothing. And then he appeals to Jesus. If you can. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I mean, just from a structural argument point of view, it's brilliant the yeah. way Christ, you know, lives out the life, but the way Mark tells the story.
2: Yeah. Yeah. And that's what's amazed me. I mean, as I've written these commentaries on Mark's gospel, I keep finding things in terms of the narrative. You know, it's like you think you spent 10 years in a gospel. You should have already found it all. And I keep seeing things that are just remarkable. My
1: my quip on that is morning by morning, new verses I read.
2: That's exactly
1: I never saw that before.
2: Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the episode, and I don't want to take us back or linger too long, but the episode of the blind man who's only half healed— that occurs just before Peter's confession is so powerful in the sense that it's a bizarre, it's another weird Mark story where Jesus heals this guy and he, he says, can you see? And he says, I see people like trees wandering around <laughs> and he, Jesus misses the bark, you know, and yeah. so he, uh, apparently, so he's got to then fine tune it and he heals him a second time. And then the guy sees clearly and you go, what in the world is exactly
1: what's happening? And in the
2: me. very next episode, Peter goes, you are the Messiah. Amen. He's got it. He's finally got it. And then he's rebuking Jesus and Jesus calling him Satan because he doesn't get the suffering and death. So Peter sees, but he only sees halfway. Mm. And so Mark places that story of the healing of the blind man right before that to show this is the disciples. They see, but they've only got it halfway. They need to see fully, which is that the Messiah will suffer. And we're only going to get that at the very end of the gospel, essentially.
1: Now, I've never seen that. That is remarkable. That's beautiful. That's one of those morning-by-morning new verses I read. (laughs) I love it. Let's go to—I always like to ask other scholars, teachers, you know, students of Scripture these questions, because I've got my opinions, but I want to be sure that I'm not just, you know, drinking the Kool-Aid, so to speak. Annihilation (laughs) is becoming a very positioned theology. Um, Mm -hmm. And we have, you know, dear brothers in Christ. Of course, we could point to John Stott being one easy uh, man that we all esteem for his skill in the text. And late in life, he changes. When I read the warnings in chapter 9, toward the end of the thing, picking up against, let's say, 42, whoever causes one of these who believes to stumble. It would be better for him, a heavy millstone hung around his neck and cast into the sea. And then he says, you know, better for you to enter life crippled, I'm jumping ahead, having Mm -hmm. two hands Mm -hmm. to go to hell into the unquenchable fire. And your thoughts on this and why has annihilationism become, I mean, maybe you believe it, I don't know. But uh, (laughs) why has it become, um, is it loving what we hear?
2: You know, I think it is more than that. And I have to acknowledge that I struggle with this. And I'm not an annihilationist, but I do struggle. And it's both a textual issue as well as really a philosophical one. The, the textual issue is that if you line up all the passages on final judgment, the number of words related to destruction is really overwhelming. I mean, you've got a few verses like this that says the fire doesn't go out, the worm doesn't die. But then there is as many or more that use word, you know, consuming or destruction. So I think there is some textual debate. There's room for debate in the text itself. But for me, the real challenge is we could call it the philosophical one or the ethical one, I guess you could call it. And that is that eternal, you know, when we kind of flippantly use the phrase eternal conscious torment, do we really even conceive of what that means? I mean, eternal means eternal. I mean, that means it goes on and on and on and never, ever stops. Conscious means you're experiencing this torment in a very real existential way for all eternity. Well, to say that people are going to be tortured, essentially tormented for eternity, for what at least on the surface look to be temporal sins. I mean, I may sin for 70 years, How much punishment should I deserve for that 70 years? You know, even if it's 70 times 70, that's nowhere even close to eternity. So I think that's the ethical challenge is how could God torment people for eternity for temporal sins? Now, the answer to that, the traditional answer would be that every sin is an eternal sin because you're essentially offending an eternal God. And so that sin deserves eternal punishment. But it's still hard to conceive of that. The conscious decisions that I make to sin are temporal and limited to my lifetime. Should I not be punished for those? And so most annihilationists would say there's going to be a period of judgment that will be torment. But then when the sins essentially have been judged appropriately, then the soul will be annihilated. So I get it. I can say that. I get it. Well, I, from it's... an
1: emotional standpoint, I do. But I would inject, I mean, the great chasm fixed in Luke 16. And right. there's debate whether that's a parable or, you know, yeah. e- ep- exegetical or what. But I tend to think it's a parable. And, I mean, there's certainly a position there where there's a horrible picture Absolutely. that he can see what's happening and there's nothing he can do to relieve his torment. And, right. I, and I would also be careful that we give attribution of God punishing as opposed to you know right. wrath that was reserved for all of us. All of us are headed to hell on a freight train, apart from God's saving grace, election predestination, we can talk about those perhaps, but apart from him choosing, selecting, responsive faith, how we sew those together. I just find it striking that our emotions run to, and destruction can also be debated uh, technically, because does that mean done? Does that mean dust? Yeah, exactly. No, Uh, I agree. And and the other one I have that causes me to kind of halt my tracks against annihilationism is if we're made in the image of God, we're eternal. Right. And I think that likeness of being made in God's image gives me more theological heartache than... God in His mercy could destroy us and annihilate us into nothingness uh, existentially or whatever.
2: Let me push back a little bit on that, because I'm not sure. We say we're eternal beings, but life always comes from God. I mean, in Him we breathe and live, and I mean, there is no life apart from God. God must maintain life or it doesn't exist. So I'm not sure anywhere in Scripture says that essentially the soul is inherently eternal. I think God has to give life for us to continue to live. Every single day, he gives us breath and life. So I don't know that scripture teaches the immortality of the soul apart from God. Um, And then a passage like in Colossians where it says he's going to reconcile all things to himself, things on heaven and things in earth. If there is a hell burning for eternity in some corner of the universe, that doesn't seem to be final reconciliation. So, again, I could argue equally well on the other side. On well, both no, side. I
1: appreciate it. But, you know, I think, again, so many times we have an anthropomorphic view of theology. Yep. You know, we yep. put it in human terms and as opposed to saying, wait, he's sovereign. He's God. Mm-hmm. He's creator. He's the standard of everything we see microscopically and telescopically. And I have to submit to that. Uh, I don't love the idea of eternal punishment, but I'm just, I'm struck by the movement more, uh, that, you know, over time, and there's so much of this love wins and God's merciful Mm -hmm. and kind, and he wouldn't do that. Well, no, he didn't do that. We chose those paths. Right. And, uh, you know, it's like when my children, if they make a poor choice and end up, you know, if they ride their bike and get hit in the street and break an arm or a leg, I didn't do that. They made a choice to willfully right. disobey a wise instruction: "Don't ride your bike in the street." And sin is not unlike that. Sin is the law that He gives us, both moral and biblical. Is you know, if you live well, you are less likely to be hit by a truck and break your arm and leg, right? right. right? If you live, you know, haphazardly and those consequences happen, you God didn't orchestrate that, right? Right.
2: I agree, and we are responsible absolutely, yeah. and we need to pay the price for that responsibility. And those who reject will be punished. I think the question of annihilationism and even, you know, Rob ultimate reconciliation that he would argue for, I think, you know, it's a question of how long and how severe is the punishment? You know, the eternal nature of it, I think, is one of the challenges. And I think probably, I mean, on the negative side, it's also less respect for the authority of scripture that is producing this. I don't think there's any doubt about that, in the sense that people can say, Okay, the Bible says that maybe, but I don't believe it. You know, well, that's less belief and faith in the authority of scripture. And that's a problem.
0: I think Well, I think. and that's
1: the huge tide. That's the dismal tide, you know, is it I call it experiential theology. We're living on a horizontal view of God and how God works for me, my passion, I, mean, my theology, as opposed to he. But anyway, I digress, my fault. Uh, (laughs) No, 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 no. not at (laughs) all. Let's let's move to the rich young ruler. Wonderful, wonderful interaction with uh, a good and righteous person who comes to Jesus. But what do I do to inherit eternal life, Mark? (laughs) Yeah, well, I think the
2: key to this whole passage is the puzzling statement at the beginning. Um, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God. And people go, ah, Jesus is saying he's not God. But that's not at all what he's saying. He's challenging the man's view of goodness. The man comes to Jesus and he says, you're a good teacher. And Jesus says, am I? Now, the man doesn't know. He doesn't believe Jesus is divine. So that's not the issue. Um, He thinks he's good. And Jesus says, you're calling this teacher, you know, this everyday teacher good. But only God is truly good. And you get to the end of the story. And what happens is The disciples say, if this is the case, who can be saved? And what does Jesus say? With human beings, it's impossible, but not with God. All things are possible with God. Salvation comes as a gift from God. It's nothing that's earned. This man was trying, he was depending on his riches for salvation. So it comes full circle back to what Jesus said at the beginning. No one is good except God alone. And so no one can save themselves when trusting in their own resources. And so the story is all about, once again, it's all about faith that saves. It's dependence on God. It's God's grace alone that brings salvation.
1: What I find interesting is this man has achieved what we would call worldly success. We might talk about Americans who, you know, money, sex, and power. We've got them in line. We've got them organized. We're out of debt, et cetera. And we think we're good people. And wealth, is, of course, is attacked profoundly by, you know, all kinds of, you know, Christians. But I find it striking that Jesus' comments, especially when it comes to wealth, they're categoric at times. And this one in particular, easier for a camel to go through an eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. And again, we go back to your observations about kingdom and what they thought that meant and what it was. And it's a difficult subject, frankly. But it's parabolic. We all know it. It's quoted by people that don't believe it. Give us some insight.
2: Yeah, needle's eye, you know, there's a false understanding that pops up in popular commentaries that there was a gate in Jerusalem called the needle's eye gate, and that you had to take the burden off your camel in order to right. squeeze it through, and that right. Jesus is essentially saying it's really tough, but you got to unburden yourself. But of course, that's not what he's saying. He's taking the largest land animal known in that context, which was a camel, there weren't elephants around, in at least at the time, and the smallest hole, I mean, a, a needle's eye. The eye of a needle is the smallest hole anyone could imagine. And he's saying, it's like trying to get this through that. And the answer is, it's impossible. So I just think Jesus is calling the man back to what is fundamental. And that is that the kingdom of God comes by faith. It comes by releasing. The opposite of faith is not works. The opposite of faith is self-sufficiency. It's the attempt to save yourself apart from God. And this rich man is depending on his riches for that salvation. And Jesus says, unless you give it up, you have to give it all up. Uh, you
1: can't possibly be saved. Jesus, again, is going to give them a very clear uh, indication of what's going to happen to him. In chapter 10, verse 32, they're on the road going up to Jerusalem because you always go up to worship. And Jesus was walking on ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who followed him were fearful. I love that dichotomy. Again, he took the 12 aside and began to tell them what was going to happen to him. Behold, we're going up to Jerusalem and the son of man will be delivered to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will hand him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. They don't get it. That's a question. Yep. Oh, I'm sorry.
0: <laughs>
2: yeah, again, they don't get it. And this is the third cycle, three times. It's so identical. You can see this is Mark's triads. Mark uses these series of threes, and the threes are almost always related to the failure of the disciples. Three times Peter denies them. Three times Jesus finds them in Gethsemane asleep. Three boat trips on each boat trip, they demonstrate lack of faith. And then the three passion predictions and it followed each time by the disciples' lack of faith, um, inability to understand, and pride, basically. And so the pride this time is, of course, James and John. And this is the climax of these three cycles, where each time Jesus predicts his death three times, disciples demonstrate pride, and then Jesus teaches them about servant leadership. And so it climaxes in Mark 10 45, which is the theme verse of the whole gospel.
1: Go ahead and, and read it for us. So-
2: yeah, yeah. Mark 10:45 is the key verse. It's the climax of these three cycles and it's the key theme verse of Mark's gospel. For even the son of man did not come to be served but to serve mm-hmm. and to give his life as a ransom for many. Mm-hmm. So James and John are planning and scheming, you know, they want the chief seats in the kingdom. Jesus is meanwhile predicting his death the third time. They must not have been listening. That's all I can think of. They ask him for the best seats on his right and his left. And Jesus, once again, you know, the other disciples are indignant because they didn't ask first. Jesus gathers them once again around him. And he says, you know, um, this is the way the Gentiles, you know, that those who are regarded as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. Mm -hmm. Their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be slave of all. And then for even the son of man, and he's not when he says son of man, he's not just referring to the human one, you know, son of man means human being. He's referring to this glorious figure of Daniel chapter seven, verses 13 and 14, who's going to inherit all glory and power and reign over the universe forever. He says, even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve. And to give his life as a ransom.
1: Expand on that a little bit on on the Son of Man. That's Jesus' favorite Um, self-identifier. And I so appreciate your reference to Daniel 7 because not everyone does that. (laughs) But open that up a little bit for us.
2: Sure, sure. There's various titles for Jesus, of course. And Son of God is a very important one. And Christ or Messiah, Christos is the Greek translation of the word Mashiach or Messiah, the Hebrew Um, But Jesus's favorite self-designation is son of man, which in Hebrew is ben adam. And son of man or child of humanity, I mean, it it means human being. Even in modern Hebrew, it means a human being. But it's an allusion also to Daniel chapter 7, where one like a ben adam, it's Mm -hmm. actually in Aramaic in that passage, Mm -hmm. so it's bar in But one like a son of man, it comes before the ancient of days, comes before God himself, the Father, and is given all power and dominion and eternal kingdom. So when Jesus refers to himself as the Son of Man, he's saying, I am fully human as well as fully divine, but I'm also this figure in Daniel chapter 7 who's going to reign over the universe forever, who's going to have all glory and honor and power. And so why does he choose that title? Well, because Messiah or Christ had so much baggage associated with it, theological baggage, because the Jews were using that title to describe this coming king from the line of David, who would defeat the Romans, who would establish God's kingdom. Jesus wants to choose a title that he can give its definition, that he can define it. And so that's why all the passion predictions, the predictions of Jesus' death, are son of man Mm saints. Jesus doesn't come out and say the Messiah is going, he says the son of man, because he's redefining the role of the Messiah. And that's why We have this messianic secret. Jesus says, don't tell anyone. I still have to tell you what the Messiah is going to do. You don't understand yet. And so this is that climax. The third time Jesus predicts he's going to suffer and die and then says, this is the role of the Son of Man. This is what the Messiah is going to do. He's going to conquer something much greater than Roman legions. He's going to conquer Satan. He's going to conquer sin. He's going to conquer death.
1: That's the best answer I've heard of Son of Man. Thank you, thank you, thank you. <laughs> now, so he hinges this with blind Bartimaeus, and he's Jesus, son of David. Yep. Jesus, yep. son of David, have mercy exactly.
2: on me. Exactly, exactly, yeah. A couple things are great here. First of all, this is a framing technique. Blind Bartimaeus, the previous healing of that blind man was right before Peter's confession, where he partially healed him. This is the second healing of a blind man, and it frames chapters 8, 9, and 10. Those are the three passion predictions, the three acts of pride by the disciples, and the three teachings by Jesus about uh, servant leadership. Those three climax, and at this point, and you've got these stories of blind people being healed, framing either side. So blind Bartimaeus cries out, son of David. First time Jesus is called son of David in the whole gospel, right? Immediately after this, Jesus enters Jerusalem and the people cry out, blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. Some scholars historically have said, uh, Mark doesn't believe that Jesus is the descendant of David. He doesn't believe that Messiah idea is important. It's only son of man stuff that's important. Absolutely not. Mark knows that the Messiah is going to be the descendant of David. And so just before Jesus enters Jerusalem as the king, Bartimaeus cries out, son of David, and we're reminded that Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David. He is the traditional Messiah. He is the one who's going to fulfill the covenant to David and Daniel, or in 2 Samuel chapter 7, in Psalm 2, in Psalm 89. All of those messianic prophecies that the Jews are expecting are going to be fulfilled because Jesus is the Messiah from the line of David but he's going to fulfill it in a way no one expected. He's going to fulfill it by his sacrifice and his death, not by conquering the Roman legions. So this is not a denial that he's the traditional Messiah. He is the traditional Messiah, but he's going to fulfill the messianic prophecies in a much greater way than anyone is expecting at this point. So Mark wants to remind his readers, Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah. And he does so with the blind Bartimaeus episode, followed by the cry of the pilgrims at the triumphal entry. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father, David. David. And what's Jesus doing? He's fulfilling Zechariah 9, 9, which is about the king for the line of David coming to Jerusalem, riding on a donkey. So it's all this messianism overflows at this point, Mm -hmm, just as Jesus mm -hmm. enters Jerusalem.
1: What I love about this progression is that he self identifies as the son of man and a blind guy <laughs> <laughs> identifies him as the son of David. <laughs> right, right. So you've got the Davidic covenant, Second uh, Samuel 7, you know, folding in here from a blind guy that we know very right. little about. Jericho, uh, you know, that's a bit of a digression, but that's a throwaway city. I mean, that's outside of Jerusalem, what, eight, 10 miles. And uh, the fact that he goes down there Uh, you've got these beggars down there. The vestiges of the Jericho story, I think, are often overlooked. But I just love the, it's delicious irony to me. He calls himself son of man, a blind guy. (laughs) The disciples are blind, but this guy's literally blind.
0: You're son of David, have
1: mercy on me. And again, that had to be a rumor he heard, a story Mm -hmm. he heard. He's not ever seen him, no pun intended. It's also an interesting point with the entourage, because in verse 49, I love this. This is endearing to me. They called the blind man saying, take courage, stand up. He's calling
2: you. Mm-hmm. Yeah. After they say, shut up. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, the, the crowds are an obstacle at one point, And then they, when Jesus says, bring him to me. And well,
1: said, in my saints bad imagination, you know, in any crowd, there's naysayers and there's, you yeah. know, antagonists, And so some of them apparently say, Hey, wait a minute. He's calling the guy. But to me, it's very endearing. Take courage. He's calling for yeah. you. Yeah. And and to me, you know, all of us are blind. I often say every healing miracle is a representation of the sin condition. We're all spiritually blind. We're all spiritually deaf. We're all spiritually disabled. And apart from a divine healer, you will remain in that condition. And, you know, the fact that he's calling for you and <laughs> and then he loved the guy. He throws his cloak aside. <laughs> <laughs> he's up and out of there, man. And um course Christ the endearing what do you want me to do for you um, and again back to your argument you know there's an expression of faith he believed mm-hmm. this Jesus could help him right right
2: and then he follows notice what it says yes it says, immediately he received a sight and he followed on Jesus the along the road. Yep. what does a disciple do a yep. disciple follows
1: Jesus in some respects we got to envision he was part of the triumph entry you know that maybe he was on yep. the heels yep. you know going up there in the Hosanna here's the our father David um, okay, let's jump ahead. Cause I want to respect your time. So, all right, Mark, we've got so much more to cover, but I want to ask you as we walk through now, we've had Hosanna that didn't go along very well. And we've got a few days. Um, we've got this passage that I think is so important where in chapter thirteen ten, where he says the gospel must first be preached to the nations, the ethnos. Mm. Um, so we obviously are teeing up very clearly about what's going to happen to him. And we had the Mount of Olives, and now we have this Passover. Let's take a couple minutes here, because we've got the Passover and the final Lord's Supper. Mm -hmm. And undoubtedly, you've done some study in this, because it's so important to the Jewish fabric of how they had their festivals, worship, and look forward to Messiah. And now he's fulfilling it a little bit different than they anticipated.
2: Yeah. And the Last Supper is really, what is Jesus doing? This is a Passover meal. That's critical because what does he do? He takes the Passover and he remakes it. He creates a new Passover where it's no longer the lamb, um, the sacrifice of the lamb. It's the sacrifice of the lamb. (laughs) It's his own sacrifice that's going to replace it. So this is my body is basically saying, this is a new exodus, right? What was the exodus? It was freedom from slavery in Egypt. The new exodus is freedom from slavery to sin, Satan, Satan, and death. And so the fact that the Lord's Supper, communion, the Eucharist is a new Passover is enormously significant because it completes the whole story of Scripture, really. The freedom that Israel received when God created them as a nation, and now the freedom we receive when God creates a new nation made up of Jews and Gentiles together, the kingdom of God.
1: In the final sequences, we've got, in some respects, a short crucifixion and burial sequence, uh, compared to other Gospels. Um, and you have some interest in the interaction of, of Mark's record with the centurion.
2: Yeah, and I just, you know, this is one of those things that you see in Mark, where people say, oh, he's not a literary artist, and you see this just magnificent scene here. Um, at the end of Jesus, the crucifixion scene, if you think about it, throughout the story, who has recognized who Jesus is? Well, The father announces who Jesus is at the very beginning, at the baptism. Demons recognize. Finally, Peter gets it, but Peter only half gets it because he recognizes he's the (laughs) Messiah, but he doesn't understand his suffering and death. The first human character to recognize Jesus is the Messiah through his suffering, that his suffering is fundamental to his being the Messiah and the Son of God, is actually a Gentile centurion. And so at the end of the crucifixion scene, it says, when he saw how he died, Just after Jesus' death, he saw how he died. Just before this, the curtain of the temple is torn from top to bottom. And the centurion cries out, truly, this man was the son of God. And so we've got two key things here. The curtain of the temple is torn, opening the way to God, essentially. And then the centurion sees how he died in his death. And he says, truly, this man was the son of God. That word, the temple was torn. The curtain was torn. That word is only used one other time. In Mark's gospel. And it's at the very beginning at the baptism. It says, When Jesus comes out of the water, the Spirit descends on him, heaven is torn open, same Greek word, schizo, torn open. And a voice from heaven says, You are my son, whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. So at the beginning of the gospel, heaven is torn open, revealing the way to God. And the Father announces that this is my son. At the end of the gospel, We call this inclusio or bookends Mm -hmm. on either side. At the end of the gospel, the curtain of the temple is torn open, opening the way to God. And the centurion, a Gentile centurion says, truly this man is the son of God. So the whole gospel is framed in two declarations, announcements that Jesus is the son of God. In two tearings that open the way into God's presence. Well, that's exactly what the gospel is. Through Christ's death, He's going to bring Jews and Gentiles together. We've got a Gentile centurion into the people of God. He's opening the way into God's presence. So again, this beautiful inclusio, beginning and end, the caring which opens up the way into God's presence, the revelation that Jesus as the suffering son of God accomplishes our salvation, just masterful literary artistry as well as theological artistry.
1: Dr. Mark Strauss, boy, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. I hope you'll come back, Mark.
2: Michael, thanks for all you do. This is so essential. This kind of in-depth study is so rare and so important. I just really appreciate what you do.
0: Michaelisian Context is fully funded by our listeners. If you are a regular listener, would you consider giving a one-time or perhaps monthly donation to support our ministry? You can give at michaelincontext.com. In Context is edited, mixed, and mastered by Tim Hull, produced by Hannah Seymour, and music composed by Chad Gates.